Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Today we ask the question, why did Jesus have to die on a cross? And what would your life look like if it weren't for that event? Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Colossians chapter 2. I am Scott, one of the pastors here, This and uh, make sure I'm on here. Yep, and glad you are with us on Palm Sunday. Uh, I want to encourage you ladies to get together, because this is really neat. Throughout each week of the five weeks, you can pick your time, and you can interact with different ladies that maybe you've never met with, and get into some uh, smaller groups of people um, to study the Word of God together. This morning and next week, I want to do a a little series just on Palm Sunday, and today is going to be more focused on the passion of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, and next week we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But as we begin this, my question for this is, what did the crucifixion of Jesus actually accomplish? What did Jesus die on the cross for? And I think in some ways, the Sunday school answer is the right answer. He died on the cross for our what, church? Sins. Okay? But why did he need to come and die for our sins? What is the purpose of his actual coming? And as we begin, I want to also begin asking this question as we not just look at a theological aspect of the crucifixion of Jesus, but an experiential aspect and ask this question, where would you be without Jesus? What would your present life be like if Jesus was not part of it? I'm going to admit something to you, and I might get fired, but it'll be okay. There's some weeks... I don't think I need Jesus. There's some weeks I feel like my life without Jesus would be the same. And yet we need to come back and ask this question, not just what did Jesus' death actually accomplish, but what does it actually mean in my everyday life? Now, obviously, without Jesus in your life, it would mean that you would spend eternity separated from God in absolute turmoil, But is there more than that? Are there not immediate, like today, implications as well? Because I want us to really start believing this, that we're not just saved from hell and awaiting heaven and trying to pretend that we experience Jesus today knowing one day in heaven it will be full and lasting. But I want you to know that your present life can be filled with abundance. Jesus came and said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it, what, church? Abundantly, okay? And that's, you know, even Jesus said this, be on guard against all kinds of greed because your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. So the abundant life is not the life of possessions. It's not the life of power. It's not the life of accumulating things. And the abundant life isn't just in this relationship between me and God. The abundant life between me and God, this vertical dimension, has horizontal implications such that the abundant life is found in living out the gospel and having the ability to maintain genuine, authentic relationships 
with God, with yourself, and with others. See, without Jesus, our lives would be filled with alienations from God. We'd be separated from Him. And because we're separated from Him, you're separated from your own self. What does that mean? How many of you are angry this morning at your kids? How many of you are worried this morning about what you look like? How many of you are angry you spilled coffee on your brand new shirt? How many of you are just not right with yourself? That's the point of sin is that because we're not right with God, we're not right with ourselves, and because we're not right with ourselves, we've got to deal with it somehow, so we take it out on others. My kids feel the brunt of me not being right with me as I yell at them. I'm not right with them. And so without Jesus... We're doomed not just having no relationship with him, but not having true understanding of self and not having true relationship with others. And so what would your life be without Jesus? What I want to say is that it would even be far worse than you could imagine not actually being able to have true relationships with people. Why do we look for the abundance of possessions, for the abundant life? It's because the most meaningful thing in our life, relationships, are the hardest things that we, don't, that we want, but we actually are so, it's so ironic. The thing we want most, authenticity, relationships with people, we put up the biggest fences from. And the good news of Jesus is he allows us to destroy those fences, to build up what we would call trenches, where gates where we can actually share ourselves with each other. But theologically, where would we be without Jesus? Why did Jesus come to die? As we locate that answer, the only way you can locate it is within a story. What do I mean by that? <clears throat> if I were going to ask you, why is, <clears throat> excuse me, why is Frodo carrying a ring? The only, yeah, and the only reason you can answer that is because you know what? The story. So if you don't know the story, <clears throat> and you just pull out the middle book, and if you don't know Lord of the Rings, you're not going to like it at redemption very long, okay? I'm just kidding. <laughs> But if you just pull out that middle book and you just read about some little hobbit carrying a ring, you have no clue what it means. And it's the same thing with the death of Jesus, that if we just pull out the Gospels without knowing the story in which Jesus actually is located, we're going to make up our own understanding of why Jesus came to die, just like you'd have to make up your own understanding of why a silly little hobbit is carrying a ring. And I want you to know that the story that Jesus died on the cross for is not so that you could live forever in heaven. The goal of Jesus' death is not just to take away your sins so that you have a right relationship with him and you can go float on a cloud playing a harp forever. No, as you locate yourself in the story and we locate why Jesus came to die, we have to begin to ask, what does the story teach us about the crucifixion of Jesus. And what we come to see, and I don't have time to go through the whole story with you, but I'm going to pull out one piece from the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 19, after God had promised Abraham that he's going to bless the whole world through Abraham, he then makes a nation out of Abraham called Israel, and he leads this nation of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, through the plagues. They, they, we'll talk about it in a few minutes. They, they celebrate the first Passover, and God rescues them. They come across the body of water, and now they're in a desert. 
And the very first chapter after they come out of the desert, there's great celebration. And then the next chapter is, I want to go back to Egypt. They have bagels, right? Like, this is no fun. But as they're coming out, God says to them, this is why I formed you. This is why I saved you and redeemed you. is so that you could be a vehicle. You, the people, the nation, could be the means by which all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Through you, Abraham, the blessing of creation that I had promised Adam and Eve that has never come to pass is now going to come through you. And he uses a very important phrase called kingdom of priests. You will be for me a kingdom of priests. A priest in the Old Testament was the go-between, the mediator. If you wanted me as a Jewish male, wanted to go to God, I'd have to bring my sacrifice or my prayer to a priest who would then take it to God for me. He'd hear from God and come back and then he'd report back to me what God had said. There is this in-between And God said to the nation of Israel, you know how all the nations are going to come to be with me and I'm going to dwell with everyone? It's through you. And so Israel was called to live a distinct life, a just life, a righteous life, so that all the nations would flock to Israel to hear about the justice of the God of Israel, hear about the nearness of the God of Israel, Deuteronomy 4 says. And so Israel is this chosen vehicle to bless all the world. And as we look at the story of Israel, how well did they do? They came really close in 1 Kings chapter 10. There's this African queen who boards a ship and she comes across the the waters to Jerusalem. You ever know who I'm talking about? The Queen of Sheba? Why is that story in the Bible? Just because it's a random fun story? No, it's because here is a powerful, mighty nation, a world ruler at that time, a queen, boarding the ship, coming to Jerusalem to hear about Solomon, his God, his wisdom. It's like Israel is on their mission, like they're actually fulfilling. The nations are coming to know God, Yahweh. That's 1 Kings 10. 1 Kings 11 says what? Solomon had many wives and turned his heart away from God. And the story of Israel just begins to plummet until they're separated into two nations, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, until finally a a world power comes and takes the northern kingdom captive and sends away to a a nation called Assyria. But the southern kingdom stuck around because they had some godly rulers until finally Nebuchadnezzar came and burned the temple in Jerusalem and took all of God's people to Babylon. Now God's purpose for the nation of Israel to bless the whole world, where is Israel? They even have lands. They have nothing. And so why couldn't Israel ever become who they were supposed to be? The powers of sin, Satan, and death were so strong that no one could overcome them. And what we see in the New Testament, and I have on the screen for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, are these three great enemies of sin, Satan, and death. And Paul says this, as for you, you were what, church? Dead. Okay, death is over you. And why are we dead? Not because we're not breathing. We're dead because of our sin. And sin here, or sorry, death here has the idea of separation. You have been separated from actually having life. 
Life is found in relationship and nearness and the presence of God, and your sin keeps you from the presence of God, so you can't have life. And he says this, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And of who? The ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Who is the one who is ruling this world? Satan. He is the God of this world. He is the one who is filling, in a sense, the airwaves, who is now the spirit being who is at work in all of the worlds. Like, God didn't make us as humans to be enemies of each other. Your worst enemy, the worst person on earth, is not the greatest enemy. It is actually the one who is behind that person that is our enemy. And then he says this, all of us lived at one time among them, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we are by nature deserving of wrath. What is, I mean, there's a lot in that passage, but what we see are there three great enemies, death, Satan, and sin. And these three powers kept God's people from actually being able to be God's people. So if God's people are going to overcome and become who they're supposed to be, guess what needs to take place? Those powers need to be dealt with. If God's people are actually going to take up their role in the story, if God's people are actually become the missional people that are supposed to be, to be the means by which all the nations would come to experience the life, love, and light of God then something had to be done with these powers. Because Abraham, he wasn't good enough. Moses, he was not righteous enough. David, even though he was a man after God's own heart, could not bring about what God had intended for his people. And I have on the screen, on these next slide, this triangle of these three great enemies of sin, Satan, and death. And they keep us from experiencing God's love, God's life, and God's light. Instead of experiencing God's life, we experience death. Instead of experiencing, uh, sorry, God's light, we experience darkness. And instead of experiencing love, we experience sin. How many of you would love to just have Jesus walk up to you as you would think of him in your head and just experience the love that he had for all those people? How many of you think that's a pretty cool feeling? Do you know that's the feeling that all of us are going to have on the new creation? All of us are going to treat each other that way? Isn't that crazy? That's the love that we don't have. Why? Because there is a power of sin at work. It keeps me from walking up and being like Jesus to you. It keeps you from coming to me and being like Jesus to me. And if I can't be that, if we can't even be that to each other, how are we going to show that to the world? These three powers of sin, Satan, and death are keeping God's people enslaved. But enslaved to being who God made them to be, the kingdom of priests. And so notice in Colossians chapter 2, I had you turn there, I think, Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 13 through 15. This is kind of the counterpart. If you know anything about Ephesians and Colossians, they're kind of mirror books, not the same, but they have a lot of similar themes. And Paul picks up these themes in this way in verse 13. He says this, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. 
He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, and he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What does that passage teach us about what the cross actually did? It brought you out of the power of death and made you what, church? Alive. The cross also took away your sins so that now we can experience love and be love. And it also disarmed the powers and authorities. This is what the cross of Jesus accomplished. And these are the things I want to talk about with you this morning. So, Father, help us not just to know in our heads why the crucifixion matters, but to understand the futility, the emptiness of pursuing a life without you. So we pray that you'll help us in whatever circumstance that we find ourselves in. Wherever we're at with you, you'll give us hope, you'll give us faith, and you'll give us love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, this morning, I want to say this. Without Jesus, you were dead. Without Jesus, you were dead. You were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. You were separated from God and consequently could not experience any type of life. See, we are not humans to become Christians. We are actually Christians so that we can become humans. You're like, stop that. That's too annoying. It's too early in the morning. Coffee's all out. Let me repeat that. We are not humans so we can become Christians. We are Christians so that we can actually become humans. What does that mean? It means this, that God made humanity to dwell with us, to be with us, so we could experience his love, his life, his light. And because of sin, we can't do that. And now in Jesus, we can actually become what humanity was always supposed to become. You can experience life, as Paul says in 1 Timothy, life that is truly life. Life is not breathing. Life is not consisting in abundance of possessions. Life is not found in what you do. Life is not necessarily found in marriage or having kids. Life is found in a right relationship with God so you can actually replicate that to others. And Paul says, you can't have that life. Why? Because of your transgressions, your sin. This is a word that, that Paul uses throughout, especially Romans chapter 5, about the sin, the original sin in the Garden of Eden. He says in Romans chapter 5 that just as sin entered the world through one man and death came through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. The implication is that because of your sin, you now experience death. This is why Paul is telling us you are dead in your transgressions. But you're also dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Okay, why is Paul talking about uncircumcision? Number one, this is probably just a very physical reference. The church at Colossae was probably primarily made up of Gentiles who were not circumcised. But if you go also back to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11... 
It says, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. What is Paul saying? Well, the uncircumcision says in the middle of verse 11, your whole self was ruled by the flesh. That's what uncircumcision is, is that you are living in your sins and your life is being dominated by the dictates and the desires of your flesh. But when Christ came into your life, he circumcised you. And that is a metaphor, it's like an an analogy of you coming and now you don't live according to your own dictates, you now live the life of Jesus. So again, Paul is saying, even as Gentiles... You need circumcision. You need a physical, no, no, you don't need a physical circumcision. You need a spiritual circumcision. Thank Jesus. But in light of all of that, church, God made you alive. God gave you life. As we'll look at next week, he, give, he is giving you the life that Jesus has when he walked out of the grave. You join in Christ's resurrection life. But then to ask the most basic question, what is life? We have lots of babies being born here. In fact, we had another one born today. Bryce and Kelly finally had their baby, all right? right? Like, and as they come into the world, yes, in a sense, they, they have life. But is eternal life just breathing forever? No, life in the scriptures, the abundant life, when God says he is life, when Jesus says he is life, and when he gives you life, it means that you are being awakened for the first time to be a human to an all-satisfying relational dynamic with the living God. Life means you now relate with the God of the universe on a way that you never could and you never were able to because of your sin. See, when we pick the, just go back to the imagery of Jesus, like him walking to us and showing us his love and we want that. You know, that is what God is all the time. And he is inviting us into that life. But that life also means, as I've said that it means you now have the ability to enjoy activities and relationships. What do I mean by activities? Is it wrong to love sports? Is it wrong to love food? Is it wrong to love your job? Is it wrong to love your spouse? Is it wrong to love your kids? Is it wrong to root for the Washington, whatever name they are? Yes. But everything, you know, like, there are certain things, I'm kidding, right? But it, what did they change in Commanders? Is that their name? Yeah. Anyone remember? You can tell me afterwards. My point is, is that when you actually into a relation, enter into a relationship with God, He gives you life, those things now don't have to be your God. You don't have to serve them. You don't have to worship them. You actually can now properly enjoy them. This is the gift of life, is that you can enjoy the things that God has made and not make them God itself. But you can also enjoy relationships. Some of us have put so much weight on our relationships that they can never carry the burden that we want them to carry. 
But when God gives you life, those relationships can now be put in proper perspective and proper placement so that God is now the ultimate satisfaction of your life and not that person. So when that person fails you, you can say what? Well, that makes sense. I fail you all the time. You fail me all the time. Welcome to marriage. And yet God is the one who never fails you. When you look to him for life, he enables you to have life in your relationships, life in your activities, and life in all that we do. So without Jesus, church, number one, you're dead. You're separated from being who you were always made to be. Number two, without Jesus, you possessed a record of debt you could not pay. Look what he says in verse 14. He forgave us all of our sins. He canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us, condemned us, and he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Because he forgave us all of our sins, the cause of our spiritual death is now done away with. The cause of our death is sin, and he has taken care of our sin. He has actually forgiven us of all of our sin. Interestingly, the word here for forgive is the root word grace. We could actually say he graced us all of our sins. And I want you to pay attention, some of you, to the word all. Grace is a complete package. Grace is not partial. Grace is total. What I mean, I mean that when he forgave us, as the old hymn says, he didn't forgive us not in part, but in whole. He forgave you all of your sins. Okay, so that means the sins you committed yesterday are what? They've been graced. The sins you've committed this morning have been graced. And the sins that he already knows that you're going to commit this afternoon are what? graced. It's unbelievable that he knows my heart and what I'm going to do later today, and he's already forgiven it. How well do we do with relationships like that? We do relationships based on merit, based on, well, if you will change, I will love you. And yet God's grace, the forgiveness, is total and without merit. You see, when the angel of the Passover in the 10th plague, as Israel is coming out of the Exodus, out of Egypt, as the angel is passing over the house, did the angel open the door and look inside and be like, are you guys worthy? No, what did he do? When he saw the blood on the doorpost, he just moved on. You know why? Because it didn't matter the worth of the person inside the house. It mattered what? About the blood that is outside the post. And what I'm hoping you're picking up on that is that your relationship and your acceptance before God, your forgiveness of all of your sins is not based on your worthiness. It is based on the merit of the blood of Jesus. And if the blood of Jesus is sprinkled on your hearts, Regardless of how you feel, regardless of what your life looked like this week, you are forgiven. Christianity is the only religion that's going to hold out hope that it is not up to you. 
It is not found in your worth. And yet the devil is regularly challenging you with your worth. And one great reformer has this quote. I think it's on the screen for you. He says this, Whenever the devil charges us with our sins and pronounces us guilty of death and hell. How many of you have Satan come to you this week and say you're not worthy? If you haven't noticed that, just pay attention this week. It'll come quickly. We ought to say to him, what? I love this. He's just like, yeah, what of it? I, I do deserve death and hell. Well, what will happen to me? And then here's the devil's response. Why, you'll be eternally damned. And Martin Luther says, by no means. Why? Because I know one who has suffered and made satisfaction for me. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he lives, I will live. That's amazing. That Martin Luther is directing our attention not to our unworthiness. And when he does say you're not worthy, just agree with him. And just say, I'm not worthy. But I know the one who is. I know the one who has taken and defeated you, as we'll see in just a few minutes. Because your worth is not based on your skill and your performance in your life. It is based on the fact that you have put your faith in Jesus. And now you have all the worth in the world. All right, I'm just going to do this. Anyone want to donate a dollar to Redemption Kids Ministry? Anyone have a dollar bill on them? I tried to find a dollar. In this cashless society that I live in, you have a dollar, Eric? Okay, great, awesome. I'm going to do this for the kids. Thank you. I better... All right, kids who are in here, how many of you want the, who wants this dollar bill? A couple of you do? All right. Well, hold on a second. I'm going to just crinkle it up for a minute, okay? All right. Yeah. How many of you want this dollar bill? You still want it? Are you sure? Okay, well, now I'm going to step on it, okay? And do, you can't see my foot, but I'm like going all crazy with it. Okay. How many of you want this dollar bill? Why do you want this dollar bill? Because no matter if you mess it up, it's still worth what? One dollar. And no matter if other people come and step on your life, it's still worth what? One dollar. Right? So, <laughs> what? That's it. I, I wish I could do magic and it was a ten dollar bill. That would have been amazing, okay? But I, I forgot your name right there. You're the kid. Come on up here. This is your dollar bill. Yeah, you. You can come get your dollar bill. Do you want a dollar? Oh, you didn't want it. What? <laughs> so, kids, why do I do that? Because sometimes you're going to mess up your own life, and other times people are going to step on your life. But your worth is not found in whether you messed up your life or other people step on your life. Your worth is found in Jesus, and it will always be the same. Your worth is found in the person of Jesus, because he has forgiven you all of your sins. Because we need to come back and just remember this, that all of the sin that we have committed left us in a place of indebtedness. 
Literally, the the Greek says here, he wiped out the handwritten record of the legal demands that were against us. He wiped out the handwritten record of the legal demands that were against us. This is, in a sense, like an IOU. Anyone have IOUs with their kids? Yeah. Um, Anyone Dumb and Dumber fans here? Okay. Open the suitcase with all the IOUs. Probably the Dumb and Dumber illustration makes a lot more sense. You have a billion IOUs that you owe to God. Because of your sin, it has left you in a place of debt that you cannot pay. You don't have the righteousness to cover all of the sins that you have committed. In fact, Paul says if you committed one sin, it is as if you've broken all of them. And because of our sin, we have been placed into a debt and our sin is so accumulated that the account that we have, we cannot pay for. And yet God says what? I wiped it away. Paul didn't have a whiteboard, but it's just like your sin is on the whiteboard and he took the marker or the the eraser and he just wiped it away. And how could God do that? How could God just take our sin and wipe it away? Well, number one, he couldn't just let it go and overlook it. He couldn't just like close his eyes and be like, all right, I don't see sin anymore. And yet that's what some of us do in our relationships. When people sin against us, we don't forgive them. We just pretend that it didn't happen. Or he couldn't. Number one, he couldn't just let it go. Number two, he didn't even decide to make us pay for it. Like this is the point in our forgiveness too, in our relationship to others, is that when we just ignore it or we make people pay for it, we're actually missing the actual point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is that God just doesn't overlook your sin and he doesn't make you pay for it. What does he do? God nailed it to the cross. And I love this imagery that God the Father nailed your sin to the cross. Jesus Christ became sin for us. And he put Jesus on the cross for us. And he nailed our sin to the cross. And when Jesus went to the cross, the power of sin was erased over God's people. Without Christ, church, you're dead. Without Christ, You have a legal debt that you cannot pay. And number three, Paul says in verse 15, without Christ, you are are ruled by an evil dictator, a tyrant leader, who is and always will be against you. Notice this in verse 14, it says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, how? By the cross. God stripped the principalities and powers, utterly divesting them of their dignity and their might. The, the, the principalities and powers here are the same words that Paul used in Ephesians 6, maybe a little bit more familiar. It says, be strong in the Lord. Why? Because our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy that we need to be strong in the Lord is these principalities, these rulers, these powers. This is Satan and all of his minions. God has stripped them away of their power over you. 
In fact, it says he led them in a triumphal procession. He led them in a triumph. You know, for us, the word triumph is like a victory. Like, did you triumph? No one uses that word. You just say, did you win? But if someone said, did you triumph? You'd be like, yes, I won. Well, what did Paul mean? That God led them in a triumph. In the Roman world, on the next slide, I think, I have a picture of a Roman triumph. The members of the Roman Senate would come in after a mass, like a, a Roman general would go out to war, and if he dominated and killed, there was like a number of over 5,000 people, and he won this massive battle, they would come back, and there would be this massive triumph in which the Senate and the, and the rulers would be in the front, followed by musician and sacrificial animals, followed by the spoils of the war, and then finally by the captured prisoners in chains. And the Roman general would be behind the captives and he'd be dressed in in purple, riding a horse. And all of his soldiers would be marching behind him. And they'd be marching through the downtown streets of Rome. And all the Roman people would be celebrating. They'd be, you know, throwing stuff at at all of the captives and the enemies. And they'd lead right up to the Roman temple of Jupiter where they would offer these sacrificial animals to Jupiter, their god, and then they would actually basically kill all of the captives that were left. And there would be this great triumphal procession. And Paul takes this analogy. And he says, this is what God has done to the principalities and the powers. He is marching them through the streets of Rome, declaring they are conquered. They have not been killed yet, but they are in this procession. They have been conquered and they are moving towards their death. The, the imagery that we get is like that at the cross, Jesus destroyed their power so that not that they're completely gone, but the wound was so deep, they have no chance of recovery. It's as if the wound is so damaged their organs, no one and nothing can heal them. And how are they conquered? They were conquered through the cross. It's interesting. How did these powers and authorities actually come to gain authority and rulership over the world? If you go back in the story in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan snuck into the garden, he wasn't just dangling a piece of fruit and got him to eat it and looked up at God and said, Ha-ha, I knew I, got, I could trick them. No, what was he trying to do? I got this answer. I was teaching at Penn Ministries, People in Need. It's, uh, RMC is trying to work with these uh, homeless people, and they're coming out and getting some jobs. So I got to teach the story of God to them. And they gave me this imagery, and it's just great, because I told them this. is like, when Joker comes into Gotham, is he just trying to make Batman look like an idiot? I mean, he wants to. But what's he trying to ultimately do? I said he's trying to take over Gotham. He said... he. Those people there, they're like, well, actually, he's just trying to spread his chaos throughout the entire city. That's what Satan is trying to do. He wants to take over the world that God made and to spread his chaos throughout all the creation. And when he got Adam to disobey and to eat the fruit, Adam forfeited the rulership of the world. So how did Adam lose rulership of God's world? Through disobedience. And every other human disobeyed. And so every other human was stuck in rulership to the God of this world until 
Jesus. That I think we could say it this way. That just as Satan gained control over God's world, I think I have this on the next screen for you, that just as Satan gained control over God's world through the disobedience of a man at a tree, so Jesus has regained control over God's world through his obedience as a man on a tree. Let me say that one more time. Satan gained control over God's world through the disobedience of a man at a tree. And yet Jesus reclaims control over God's world through his obedience as a man on a tree. Satan won the world through disobedience and Jesus won the world back through his perfect obedience. That if you perfectly obey, guess who no longer has rule over you? Satan couldn't rule Jesus. You know why? It's because he couldn't sin. He couldn't get him to disobey. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, Adam, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. What did Jesus' death accomplish? It destroyed the powers of sin, Satan, and death that kept God's people enslaved from actually having a vibrant, real relationship with him so that then they could take that relationship and share it with people. And church, this is why Jesus came. He came to strip away the powers of sin, Satan, and death from us so that we can already, through the power of the Spirit, be people who can radiate that love to others. Which is why Paul is so concerned in these epistles that the church be unified and loving. It's because now that these powers are gone, we, through the power of the Spirit, can actually become the people of God that we've always been promised. And so this week, as we meditate, we need to meditate on the fact that Jesus had to come because I'm so bad. There was no other way to deal with my sin. There was no other way to make me alive because I was completely ruled by an evil dictator. And he has come to destroy all those powers so that you and I could experience life that is truly life. Experience to give love and to receive love as God has always intended humanity to have and to dwell in light. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.